Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related. Brought to you by the panel jumper. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is the panel jumper himself, Mr. Cole Hornaday. Hello, Cole. Hey, And we have a couple special guests today. We have uh, Seattle-based novelist and playwright Scott O'Moore. Hello. And also joining us, if you're familiar with the panel jumper, you probably know him as manager Mike. Mike Gilson. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thank you both for joining us. And I'm going to pass it over to Cole to give a proper bio that he actually wrote up. I just kind of wing these things. So Cole, Cole put some effort into <laughs> us. I'm going to let him read. I'm going to let him read that. Go ahead, Cole. Thanks, Ben. Um, I, I actually, I don't think I qualify for as anything other than a winger. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you, friends. Scott O'Moore is a Seattle-based multimedia rock on tour who for 14 years has been an active playwright and a cornerstone of the Seattle Fringe Theater community. During his 14 years as an active playwright, we saw major productions of his work nearly every year, including at least 45 short plays penned for events like 1448, the world's quickest theater festival. Uh, his theater highlights include the book, lyrics, and music for the acapella sci-fi musical Silhouette, which made its world premiere at Annex Theater and won the 2018 Gregory Falls Award for Outstanding New Play, presented by Theater Puget Sound. In 2011, Scotto also wrote, directed, and produced three seasons of the sci-fi uh, comedy series, The Copy Table. And he later mm -hmm. wrote, starred in the horror comedy play, H.P. Lovecraft, Stand-Up Comedian. In 2015, Scotto even dabbled in comical production with his online strip, Storm and Desire, produced in collaboration with artist Eddie DeHaze. His breakout sci-fi horror novella, Your Favorite Band Cannot Save You, was published by Tor.com in 2016. And today we come together to discuss Scotto's eagerly anticipated debut Tor.com novel, Battle of the Linguist Mages, based on his stage play, Duel of the Linguist Mages, which will be released in early 2022, followed by a second novel in 2023. I practiced that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Scott. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. So um, first off, let's just start by uh, some basic uh, bio info. Scotto, uh, are, are you from Seattle and how did you get started writing? Have you always been writing or is this a later in life development? No, I, I'm from Iowa and then I, uh, I went to college in Iowa, got a degree in theater and my theater program didn't have a playwriting option. Um, it was small enough that we it had a playwriting it had a class but didn't have a, a you couldn't major in playwriting um so i was writing plays in college and i was writing novellas in college um and i you know if i look far enough back i was writing screenplays for you know stuff when i was like 10. so i think it's kind <laughs> of always been part of the fabric of what i do is to try to express myself in words somehow um and I can still remember how hard it was when I was a little kid to imagine writing more than like two pages of text. How do these people write <laughs> these 10 or 20 page stories? I didn't get it, but eventually I figured it out. Yeah. And Mike, you've, um, you've actually been in at least one ensemble of one of Scotto's productions, as well as having been um, the proofreader for um, the, the, I'm going to get the title wrong because the title is for Battle of the Linguist right. Mages, right? Correct. Yeah. So, was, uh, yeah. And Scott, I'm, I, I think I confused my brain. So the forthcoming novel is based on um, um, mages, but does it include balconies or is that? It does. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing where it takes Duel of the Linguist Mages, this sci-fi play from 2011, and mm -hmm. then Balconies, which was this romantic comedy which I think was in 2014, mm -hmm. takes yeah. a bunch of characters from this and a bunch of characters from that and smashes them together mm -hmm. in a very improbable kind of way and uh, throws in a bunch of new characters too to kind of season it a little bit. Um, and uh, Mike was one of the characters in Balconies that didn't make the cut for this Production <laughs> for this for the book, you couldn't, couldn't squeeze them all in, unfortunately. But, but Scott, um, he was an ensemble 
where he played multiple roles. Did you go through and systematically cut out every Mike Gilson part from the I movie? did actually cut both of his parts. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, reading, I was looking, I was looking, but uh. yeah. It's it just there there was too partially because uh well it doesn't matter because people haven't seen balcony, so we can't really <laughs> nitpick or whatever, but um it's it's uh it's fun to have kind of this body of, you know, cause I like remixing my own work. Like I was doing that anyway, you know, so my first play at Annex, which I think was uh, 2004 or something like that, Interlace Falling Star was based on a book that I had written in my twenties, which was a sequel to, you know, a book that I had written along in my, in college, which goes, used characters that I had invented in high school. And like these things keep getting rolled forward because I'll come up with a better or a different or some new way to use a thing that I, you know, they're not done yet. There's no, there's no expiration date on an idea that uh, it could still bear fruit down the road. So that's, that's, what, that's been a lot of fun with, with writing novels. Um, your favorite band cannot save you is kind of an, an exception because it doesn't, you know, in addition to remixing, you know, you have to actually generate new stuff every now and then. Uh, <laughs> that that came out of nowhere. That was just something that was a one-off. But Mages, it was originally going to be three plays. Battle of the Linguist Mages was also going to try to fold in characters from this play that I had written called When I Come to My Senses, I'm Alive. And that was too much. My brain just, I got 20,000 words into that draft and my brain just went, this is absolutely not working. And so it was a page one rewrite on on the second draft, and then uh, and then once we trimmed that little trunk, then we were in balance between the balconies and the duel of the linguist mages threads. I could hold them all together and, and make it gel. So. Do you consider, so you've done a number of uh, plays at Annex. Uh, Paul Goody and I were recently talking about Principia Discordia, which was a late night many 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 years ago. Oh yeah. Um, that happened at uh, the old Empty Space Theater in Fremont. <clears throat> Do you consider though the, all of your plays to be sort of like in the same universe? No, I don't. I think there are definitely, uh, you know. So, for example, Silhouette doesn't exist in in the same world as as Battle of the Linguist Mages, but you could make an, a growing case that um, the coffee table material is eventually mm -hmm. going to, you know, show up as part of this Battle of the Linguist Mages world. Um, there, you know, you'll see different things pop up here and there, you know, Battle of the Linguist Mages is a one-off. It's not part of a trilogy. It's not, it was specifically like the deal was for two books, but the second book was not meant to be book two of Battle of the Linguist. It was just going to be a right. one and done, but, um, some of the best kind of, some of my favorite series are those that like, they, they're not abounded by a trilogy, but they'll go on and have standalone books that build a lore over time or whatever like uh the laundry series for example by oh, Charles yeah. Dross, you know so any one of those books i mean i think at, now you're at book 12 or 13 you do kind of need to know what came before but the first several books you could kind of pick and choose where you wanted to start for a while depending on what motif was most interesting to you so um uh, I'm, I'm thinking along those lines for future for future stuff i wanted to double back and talk about um a little bit about uh your favorite band cannot save you because this was the first um, uh, uh, full-length prose piece of yours. And it's not, I mean, it wouldn't even be considered full-length prose piece, but extensive prose piece of yours that I've written. And I was immediately immersed in a style that I had not experienced before uh, in your playwriting. Um, so uh, a first-person narrative, but um, there's a lot of intermingling of, of of style or of lingo and concepts and um and it also touches on one of your favorite things in the world which is music and that's been very clear throughout a lot of your other um productions including um you know the original music the mouse who knows me which by the by i just wrestled this away from mr this is one of the props from the uh mouse who knows me um i'm gonna have to give it back to him before he disowns me but anyway <laughs> So uh, what I loved about reading this, among other things, was watching you uh, uh, immersing myself in your developing style, narrative style, as a novelist. What did you learn from writing this novel, and how did you go about applying it to um, your translation of your stage plays to novel form? 
think the the hook for me when I was working on uh, your favorite band was the the realization kind of early on that writing first person is essentially kind of writing a long form monologue for a character. I mean, that's, it, it enables me to feel comfortable in my shoes as someone who principally writes dialogue, right? So as a playwright and not that playwrights don't have to think about, you know, plot and all these setting and all that kind of stuff, but playwrights express themselves through dialogue like that's the engine of everything and first person is when I started to think of it that way I loosened up because my the prose attempts that I made in my 20s were sufficiently stilted as you know in these third person kind of trying to write a science fiction story and not and do something distinctive and kind of always failing to do anything distinctive and never really kind of understanding it and then getting into playwriting is where I kind of realized, oh, these, you know, every actor is going to do something different with the words that I'm saying. And, and if I can kind of figure out how to get some creative juice off of that, you know, imagining these people, that, that was a hook into playwriting was, oh, I get it. Everybody's going to do something different with the material that I hand them. And, and it, you go from like, at least I did in my early days, like, having a set of voices in my head that I would always hear like this actor, you know, I would, I would constantly, and maybe other playwrights in Seattle are like this, but like I would write a, a male lead and go, Oh, this is probably Daniel Christensen. And I would just hear his <laughs> voice, you know, and even if he never auditioned, it would, it helped me as kind of a, a learning, you know, you could call it a crutch to kind of think that way too, because then you, what 1448 taught me was the reverse of that, which is you have no idea what voice is going to get your words and it has to, has to still be specific. It has to still be a specific person and uh, graduating through those lessons, uh, you know, as a burgeoning young playwright gave me kind of confidence to loop back around finally as a prose person and go, all right, I think I have a hook here. And so Battle of the Linguist Mages takes that to kind of the extreme. Like it's when you when you meet the main character, um, she's not from either of the two plays. She's a unique device um, wow. that ties it all together. Um, her voice is uh, just just so sharp and outrageous and kind of uh, and, and it. Second draft of the play or of the book was an experiment in voice mm. that uh, kind of failed dramatically and we had to throw out the entire second draft and <laughs> boom, right? Uh, third draft from from uh, scratch. The third draft is the one that kind of went, oh, I get it. And then we did a couple of more revisions, um, but we were locked. We had this character's voice. So that was a, that's kind of the long way of saying, you know, theater fed the, you know, the the prose in that very specific way and then but then you kind of realize the you you leave theater in the background when you can kind of the sky's the limit with your imagination in a novel mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you don't, the beauty of theater is the constraints that you're always working against right you know even if you're on broadway you don't have infinite money or time so mm -hmm. you're working against constraints somebody somewhere is and that's what makes it you know ephemeral and charged and full of life or whatever but those constraints that you know when you spend 14 years in fringe theater you know it's like man i am tired of constraints after a while <laughs> and, uh, so Manager Mike is the only one among us who's actually read a draft of uh, Mages. What um, and as, have has a strong familiarity with both the scripts, both the play scripts in question. What was your experience like reading that book? What did you? Um, what was that immersive experience like as a reader? And what excited you about it? Uh, well, it was a it was really fantastic experience having been familiar with both plays. Uh, just seeing characters that I recognize pop up. That's always on that surface level as a, you know, a Scotto fan. It was, it was nice to like see those characters crop up and see how their story diverged from what was in the plays. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what always has caught me about uh, Scotto's writing is the, uh, in my opinion, very masterful handle on dialogue and vernacular. Mm -hmm. um, the voices that he creates for the characters are incredibly real 
and and grounded. Um, and seeing those those characters interact that way is is always it's always fun and it's very engaging, and it really kind of pulls you in. Um, even when the characters aren't necessarily talking there, but because of the first person aspect, um, their you know internal monologue that you are, get to read is full of that same same really dynamic nuance. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so reading the books, it's they're hard to put down. You know, um, it's like you're just like oh, oh one more chapter. Let me just a few more pages, a few more pages, and it's like two hours later, you're like ah, <laughs> it's two in the morning. I should go to bed. <laughs> you know? um, so they're really and the the speed of the story moves quite well in that regard too, because you're just kind of in a conversation with this character or just listening to that those real words, and it's not. It's not, you know, flowery language, which is, you know, hard to process, but it's like, it's, it's real talk. So, which is very, very engaging. So, Scotto, did you, um, did you sort of touch on other authors' style that inspired you when you started writing? Or um, did you come at this whole cloth? Because when I was reading um, uh, your favorite band, there were moments where I'm like, oh, I'm digging this because it reminds me of... And there were, in particular, there were moments that remind me of John Dies in the End, which is not, uh, a, a, which is not as fun a novel as this is, but there were just these moments of, of real world busting up against, you know, um, Lovecraftian dread and that sort of thing. So were there, were there authors that were speaking in your head as you were writing? Um, not for the things that, uh, that Mike was just describing, but from okay. a, but I'm, I had the great fortune of rereading one of my favorite books, probably my favorite book, if I had to guess, right before I started writing uh, one of the drafts, this book called The Library at Mount Char. Mm -hmm. And the premise is that, um, without giving away too much, a, a family living in the suburbs turns out to be the supreme beings family and he's raising little godlets basically in the suburbs mm -hmm. to, to uh, run the world or whatever um and it's just deep and moving and funny and demented and all these things that i i wanted my thing to be and i so i took direct inspiration from kind of that that vibe of you know if there are gods they still gotta eat and they gotta learn that's you know they they don't start with all of their godlike skills they have to they have to they have to go through a training process maybe and that you, you definitely can see that in battle of linguist mages which is the main character is a video game player and in video games you know that kind of conceit of i just leveled up and gained another set of godlike powers and i have now got the new magic artifact that makes me 28% more deadly and whatnot um she's a flamboyant video game player so she models her own kind of life that way and uh events in the story kind of correspond to the way she believes uh, to, to that outlook as as things progress but you know charles strauss is also like this other huge kind of general inspiration um yeah. and uh, the in particular you know what you just described about your favorite band i think the atrocity archives kind of for me invented that that mm -hmm. that collision of technology and like really really technical stuff uh like i'm i'm re uh i'm i have a friend of mine who is uh who's ill and i'm reading over the phone uh, uh, every day at uh, the atrocity archives which i haven't read mm -hmm. since it came out you know now i'm reading his latest one or whatever but uh, going back and just seeing uh how dense and gorgeous some of the you know the physics of the dead world in the atrocity archives and how yeah. everything you know the 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 invention of the basilisk gun and all these different elements uh left a mark on me i just i'm i'm positive that some of the ways i think about technology and the supernatural as a as these tension points came from charles strauss so I would agree. It, I, would, I would back that up, having read those uh, after you turned me on to Charles Strauss, that I definitely caught a lot of those kind of similarities and yeah. vague yeah. aspects of feeling in there. Yeah. 
So I have, I have um, one more question and then I'll stop dominating the, the, the question part of the forum. Um, tell us about your, your first, your initial pitch to tour. How did that come about oh, yeah. and how did it happen? So this is, it's actually an interesting story. Uh, I will be I, the judge of that. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. Maybe I'll tell, maybe I better tell one that I can guarantee is interesting. Um, no, so in, in, I did HP Lovecraft stand-up comedian in 2015. And a friend of mine saw the play and uh, was uh, doing a set of, um, Ignite talks at South by Southwest. He was organizing that and invited me to come and do an Ignite talk at South by Southwest. But uh, for a number of years, I was like an artist in residence for Seattle Ignite. So instead of, you know, people go up and do their talks and they'd be, you know, TED Talk-ish or, you know, in that in that format or whatever, but then I would do storytelling or in one, we did a play one time with, you know, characters and all the, still, you know, slides advancing every 15 seconds or whatever. But so my friend and I kind of agreed we would bring the character of Howie Lovecraft South by Southwest. And instead of being a stand-up comedian in that environment, he was a failing technology blogger. And <laughs> so his whole presentation was very much, you know, here are the things that cannot save you from the coming apocalypse. You know, and, and you would the coming, you know, Lovecraftian apocalypse. And so you'd get jokes like, you know, beware the internet of elder things and, mm -hmm. you know, distributed denial of sanity and kind of that you know, <laughs> level of humor, but in a slideshow format. And so one of the gags was to write a thing called things that cannot save you dot com as his blog. And I sat up before the talk and populated a Tumblr that did had a bunch of jokes and whatever. And that tumblr is now the most popular thing i've ever created like by this stupid <laughs> wide margin um you know just like i have probably eight thousand people following that blog for no apparent reason and there's no there's zero way to monetize it so it's it's <laughs> pure in that way um damn it but what i hell? started but then i started to go okay well sh shoot i mean i have a captive audience of people who who are reading everything and if even a tiny sliver of them might want to read prose i uh, here i have a publishing venue so i self-published you know it was a it was, it's 10 chapters and i wrote and i published on monday through friday monday through friday over the course of two weeks and i thought well oh, that's it you know, I, it was kind of a vanity project to just put it out there, you know, because I'm a playwright, not a novelist. I don't have a, didn't have any expectations of anything or whatever. And, uh, and in the meantime, Storm and Desire happened. And when I, when I, when we folded Storm and Desire, which is this comic effort, learned a ton and it was very rewarding. I did enormous amounts of world building for it that someday you may see and whatever. Mm -hmm. But when the comic folded, I put out on our newsletter, I'm, I'm thinking of taking this idea and making it into a novel. And so one of the people who read the newsletter uh, introduced me, a friend of mine actually, introduced me to an editor at Tor and said, well, this guy at Tor that I know, this editor is always buying novellas. So you should take Storm and Desire and try to sell it to this guy. And I said, F that, I have a novella. I just wrote one. It's literally <laughs> sitting here. So I clean it up and I submitted it to this editor. and he got right back to me he was like i love this this is this, this is in like 2017 i think it's like february 2017 and he goes i love this but um and my publisher loves it but tor has a policy we won't publish anything that's been self-published we just flat out it's off the table you, you can't do it and so i was like well that's you know it was like kind of bittersweet you know it's like mm -hmm. oh I, I had a shot and it didn't pan out and he's like if you ever write anything again and don't self-publish it then why don't you ping me and uh so i forgot all about that because i started working on silhouette which consumes mm. a six-month dedicated writing effort you know to get all that accomplished and i must have been in a tickler file for this guy because a year later this editor um writes back and says have you done anything and i'm like yeah, I did this musical. <laughs> you know, it's not something you can. And I sent him some some articles. Well, he's a theater guy too. He does theater, um, and he's in located in the UK. So anyway, he 
I made this, I don't know that this had anything to do with it, but I made this kind of joke that said, by the way, this book that I self-published and I, cause I had put it on Amazon to make it convenient for friends to just like find it in search and get it as a whatever. It makes me approximately 25 cents every quarter on Amazon. Cause I don't, I have never promoted it. It's not a, you know, whatever. The next day he comes back and goes, well, I tried again and this time we're going to buy it. <laughs> and so. <laughs> so they broke so, his own rules. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, the book that got self-published in 2016, they buy it in 2018 and it comes out in February of 2019. That's when it actually went out. Now, if I had been really super savvy about publishing, cause you know, the, there's a there's like a long lead time for for actual novels like it's like two year lead time or whatever but i had written a musical instead of a novel so i didn't have a novel waiting for me you know and i oh you like this well here's my stack of unpublished manuscripts (laughs) because i was i have always been of the mind that i like to see the thing the plays that i write like i write to get produced i don't write to it's not an academic exercise it's like let's go make a piece of theater um so anyway, that's why, so that I it must have been like silhouette clothes, sorry for the, the long form history here, but it's, it's, it all weaves together. Silhouette closed and that summer I kind of finally got going on writing Battle of the Linguist Mages thinking, okay, I might, this editor might listen to me. Like your favorite band was a one book contract. There's no guarantees that anything would ever happen again. But I thought, well, he, you know, I, at least I can convince him to potentially read a new thing, but it has to be really fantastic or whatever, which, you know, isn't saying a lot. I mean, everything you do should try to be fantastic or whatever, but it took me a lot. Like I bombed, like I leveled up a lot trying to write mages through the help of some uh some very committed friends who like really chipped in and kind of bolstered me and mike included uh but i have a you know a fr- one of my closest friends went through clarion west and she's a writer who in addition to uh you know she unsparingly uh just sharp about critique and has <laughs> learned the language of critique from you know the best and kind of you can't, there's just nothing you can kind of slip past her. So um, when you, you know, when you think of um, all of, you know, the theater version of, of, of that is like extreme. It's like, you know, you write the first draft of a play and you invite 15 actors and some designers and you're in the same room for them to sit around and tell you, well, this is terrible. Like this is terrible. <laughs> and then that was terrible. And and you get a real, like you can either just people fold under that pressure. People literally take zero feedback because they can't handle it all the way to my extreme, which was I will take every good idea that anyone is presenting here and I will harvest these ideas and claim them for my own. <laughs> and that's how you improve. You just like, you know, that sense that, Anytime somebody has an experience with your work, it it's legit. Like it's, they had that experience. Like, you know, they, if they told you they didn't like it for a reason, that reason's totally valid. You have to live with the, its validity. You have to make a conscious decision to go, well, I just don't care because I think it gives me these other effects all the way to, Shh, that's not what I meant, you know? And anyway, so with mages, I overcorrected in this one way, which was, I got, was really overconfident at the end of the second draft. And I reached out to a lot of people, which you didn't read, Mike. You got no, I got I got version four. Yeah, you got version four. So yeah. <laughs> a bunch of people got version two, and I was like, I was really psyched. And people started just giving me these confused kind of responses. And then my hmm. close friend, who uh, that I was just describing, got back to me. She's like, No, nope, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> not good. It was not good. And she, it's good to have friends like that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I mean, it just spared me a lot of heartache right out of the gate. And when I understood, when I, you know, when I lived with kind of her feedback for a while and kind of had that realization, like, yeah, th- there's nothing salvageable. Like, I have to start over from scratch to make hmm. the improvements that she's suggesting are in the DNA of the piece, they're not just at the surface level hmm. of the piece. 
So um, anyway. Is that, when that happened and you realize that you had to start from square one, is, is that, is that like heart wrenching or were you sort of like, did you want to start over? Were you, were you ready to put the project away? Were you, what, what's that like knowing that you have something, but you need to just do it over? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Cause it's, it's demoralizing. It feels initially like a major setback, even though you are learning a great amount about like, if you're being honest with yourself and you see the flaws for what, you know, once the spotlight's on the flaws and you kind of go, Oh, you're right. It's very demoralizing. And, and, but by the same token, she had seen enough things in there like this. Why aren't, why aren't you doing more of this element? You know, why is this character? So uh, the main character was borderline sociopathic in terms of how much, how arrogant uh, she was. And so, you know, so just being able to correct that changed a whole flavor about the book when she became more of a, I think the analogy is she became less of a, if you're a, if you're a gamer, if any of you have ever played a D&D like a game in your careers, mm -hmm. she became less of a kind of uh, a sort of chaotic, neutral, rogue, assassin, mm -hmm type character and became more of a baby paladin who doesn't know that she's got that capability and that's a dramatic swing in terms of character yeah. not not a dramatic <laughs> swing in terms of what i needed her to do in terms of the plot like i could i saved the major set pieces from the book in terms of the sequence of the big events like you know the there are well i'm not going to tell you that would be spoilers mm. these big <laughs> events that happen all those events happened in that order but then the way in which they unfolded was just completely started over from scratch on every level hmm. um oh. the villains got better in in that third draft like the you know the the there's this cabal of bad guys that kind of shape up and i started to really get individual voices for them. And that was some of the feedback that I got on the second draft from some of my friends who were really confused. They were like, for someone who is supposedly good at dialogue, all of these characters sound the same because mm. you don't seem to know what the hell you want out of them. And once I went back and made them more specific in my own mind and kind of gave them each an individual kind of tarot card style of personality, you, you don't need much but to differentiate people from each other when you're at the brainstorming level, but you need something. And I hadn't done the work. So going from the second draft to the third draft was like a level up as a writer, like just period. Like I kind of had some epiphanies that are irreversible. Like now I can hit the ground running without those first two drafts, you know, and subsequent. And then this is how it went with playwriting. Interlace Falling Star took me eight drafts to get to production. Silhouette, we produced the second draft. Like. Hmm got some feedback, made some rewrites and boom. And that's 14 years of like work, like, you know, to narrow down the number of drafts that, have, that <laughs> you need to do. And sometimes you spike back up because the thing you're trying is really ambitious and you blew it. But anyway, um, <laughs> the other, then the, I should mention this, just the, the, you saw the fourth draft, Mike. Um, yeah. So things were really starting to get a polish, like a veneer. And then after I took your feedback and some other people at that level, I hired a sensitivity reader to come through and help me take ah, the finish line a little further, nice. which is, uh, um, isn't something I had ever done before and didn't know anything about. And it doesn't kind of alleviate me from the responsibility of understanding what the hell I'm putting into my books or whatever. But it was, it was eye-opening how much I just took for granted and didn't know when you're trying to represent different um different parts of society in your character set you know that's the one thing like you know 1448 was kind of deceptively simple in certain ways because you couldn't predict what you were going to pull out of the hat for for anything by the end you didn't know you might gender race age you don't know anything and you have to write a play that is specific anyway but it can only be specific in certain ways because you can wind up contradicting yourself and you can't, that's not the, so 1448 is like a beautiful 
theater Tetris in that way. <laughs> but writing in a novel, like people are going to be living with these characters for a lot longer than 10 minutes. It's like they're going to live with these characters for a long time and they have plenty of opportunity to observe these characters in their natural habitat and then understand whether you did the work, the legwork to kind of know what the hell you're talking about. And so I got uh, really schooled in some areas the one that the the biggest area for me was not recognizing how ableists a lot of my vocabulary is mm. and so a, you know just a very basic example you know of if you go well she's crazy and you just move along oh. mm. you know that's you're making a statement about someone's mental health and it's not necessarily appropriate to use that terminology in a derogatory fashion when there are other ways you could say well she's erratic and unpredictable that are not derogatory to anybody they're just specific mm. about that person that you're talking about and man you know i got a probably a 15 page report from the woman who read my book and half of it was ableist stuff just like ways in wow. which i could do things better in that regard um, that's intriguing yeah. wow and then and, okay. you know and then she she caught some you know she caught some racist tropes that i didn't realize were tropes like oh did you know that if you put that character in that situation if you put that black character in that situation relative to that white character it references a set of dangerous tropes that we don't that we're trying not to propagate or you know that level Ooh. of there's just no way like it, you wouldn't need a sensitivity reader if everybody knew all of these things right um so it was, that was the other piece that kind of helped me like really click with that book. So I'm super proud of it. I'm, I'm that's fantastic. Wow. I'm yeah. Hoping reality doesn't implode before that book like hits the market. <laughs> I want us to hold on to this reality just long enough. And then after that, all bets are off. You know, <laughs> you mentioned, um, you mentioned that it's not coming out until 2022. Are you done with it? And it just takes that long to, to produce. Yeah, it was going to, it, it was going to come out. It was going to come out summer of 2021. And pandemic has caused publishing to slow down <laughs> yeah. um, for reasons like, you know, like they need to do social distancing at printing presses. So literal physical oh. velocity of books is like lower, hmm. you know, so there's jockeying for attention and, you know, it's, it's kind of, we'll see what the state of the world is, you know, so if you're a, a debut novelist this year right now it's really tough you know because you're not doing bookstore tours and it's hard to get people to um it's hard to cut through the noise of all the anxiety of this year we'll see what happens by the time um january or february or whenever the hell in 2022 it comes out i'm not exactly sure like i don't have a i know it's early but i don't have a release date in my head or whatever but people are starting to do things like uh, this has got me pretty tickled thinking about this people are doing virtual book tours um so zoom you know hosted things where a bookstore in a city will sponsor uh, an, a conversation between authors and try to front you know their buy us buy from us via bookshop or whatever however you want to do that or whatever and i suspect that there are few authors who are doing these virtual book tours who have the theatrical background that i do or flamboyant <laughs> about powerpoint as i am <laughs> so so i'm 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 eager to push the format of the virtual book tour if i if i get the opportunity we'll see how it goes well, i remember i remember you at uh your panel that you were on at comic-con um for your favorite band can't save you and like just your your uh you know, usual Scott Osadonic way of describing the book and everything was really appealing to people uh, in the audience. Yeah, that was that was fun. I, I'm nervous about doing panels. Uh, because So Emerald City Comic Con is like home turf. It's our stomping ground. And I was thrilled to have, be a participant at Emerald City Comic Con. I loved it. Um, but I've had the opportunity since to, like I, I went to... Worldcon, which is the big sci-fi thing. Uh, I'm, by the way, completely ignorant. I didn't know Worldcon. I had never heard of it. And my I editor 
Yeah, my editor, and it's like where the Hugo Awards are, I think, it, yes, hmm. the Hugo Awards are given out, right? Oh, okay. So my, my editor is coming over from the UK that year to go to Worldkins before my book had been published. So I was like, there was literally zero reason for anyone at the conference to know who I was. But my editor was coming over and the con was in San Diego, which is a hop, skip and a jump from Seattle. And so I went to that con and, um, you know, the value of it was getting to meet and have a half hour conversation with my editor like that. It was mm. worth all the, the rigmarole. The conference itself, I'm kind of like, well, there was a lot of drama. And then I went to the a couple like the online Nebula conference and the online WorldCon this year where George R. R. Martin kind of made a fiasco of the award ceremony and there's, there's a lot of drama around these cons and I'm just a little old, like, I don't know half these people and I don't understand. <laughs> but one, one thing I do understand is that people who organize these cons are getting tripped up on diversity in really bad ways. They're not, mm. they're, they're not doing the legwork to kind of get the right um, audiences in to address these topics with like, finesse and like nuance and they there was a new con that i completely missed because i had been to like four or five cons that were not that exciting to me this was called FiaCon, and it apparently blew like everybody out of the water like everybody's now like i'm stoked to see you know to be first in line to buy a ticket to this thing for next year um so i don't want to like I feel like I have a lot less to contribute on a panel than just about anybody I can think of, unless <laughs> the panel is like this, like, let's talk about how playwriting inspired your novels. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to discuss that very specific. I am an expert on creativity. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But don't, I'm not prepared to talk about world building. I am not prepared to talk about, you know, hard science fiction topics or anything like that i'm just uh, the fun the weird thing is i'm now i'm a fantasy writer now like i was writing science fiction for all these years i thought but now i'm classified as contemporary fantasy <laughs> Scott, uh, without being too spoilery and for those who may not be familiar with your oeuvre um i like that word uh, it is it's a good one it's a good one <laughs> can you um, can you kind of give us uh, an overview of the, the story of, of, uh, of mages and maybe a little bit of balconies to titillate people's uh, imagination and, to, and, and uh, build their anticipation for this story? I just got done rereading the scripts and oh, I saw gotcha. both the stage, be quiet. I saw both of the, the plays staged, um, staged when they originally produced and it was Wonderful to go back and visit that language and those characters. So they're all fresh in my brain. But what it dawned on me is like there are people who are going to be sitting down and, and watching this and not be familiar with um, your oeuvre. So right. tell us a little bit what happens about what happens in both those stories and, and what's um, and what's exciting about them to you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, so Duel of the Linguist Mages, the play that kind of inspired a chunk of this um, came about because I was talking to a good friend of mine who... Um, I'm going to get this some aspect of this wrong so this don't okay. don't quote me on this but right she was working in the field of um she was a, a a linguist computational linguist i'm not sure but a linguist working in the field of internationalizing speech recognition um systems and when she, we were at a party and she was describing what she did for a living to me and i was like that literally sounds so impossible that it is <laughs> science fiction. It's just, you know, that whole old saw about the future being unevenly distributed. Like there is some amazing technology and this was in 2011. So, so I asked her if she would consult with me and we, you know, help me build a script because I immediately went to nefarious places with, you know, well, if you can do that with, you know, then, than the ipso facto aliens, you know, and uh, the premise of Duel of the Linguist Mages was that um, you had this little advertising agency that had figured out a way to pack more meaning into an individual morpheme than should be possible. And they do nefarious things with that. And a morpheme is the smallest kind of unit of meaning that you can ascribe to a, a component of language or whatever. So then meanwhile, a few years later, balconies, the whole hook for me when I pitched balconies mm -hmm. at Annex 
I didn't have a script. I had, I had reached my my um, lazy, leisurely age of now I'll simply throw a pitch at you. And next year, I'll just give you a title. And the year after that, <laughs> I'll just bring in a perfume bottle and mist it. You know, I was getting kind of lazy. No, I'm kidding. But um, Balconies, the premise was uh, I wanted to do a play. I really wanted to do a play that took advantage of um, one of the one of the things fringe theater really can do uh, better than professional theater sometimes. And that's put a huge number of people on stage because they're not paying everybody. So you can have as many volunteers as you can convince to show up and put on a costume. <laughs> so we had 14 actors playing, yeah. each of them playing two or three characters, probably. But the premise was on one balcony, you had a like a, a governor candidate throwing an elite fundraiser for the hoi polloi and the you know the silicon valley kind of technocrats and the political leadership of the state or, or whatever and then meanwhile next door you had the the makers of the hit video game sparkle dungeon the medieval rave themed you know, campaign adventure story, the Sparkle Dungeon 5, Assassins of Glitters being released and they're throwing a giant party. And so actors and musicians and performance artists and everybody. And so these, but they had, they had their balconies are what you see on stage. They abut each other. And so hijinks ensue is cross-pollinization of these two wacky camps kind of unfolds or whatever. So, um, good times. Half of the characters from each of those plays like made it into this new book. And I I actually I want to read something to you because I can <laughs> literally share with you. It's in the form of you can imagine it as in the form of a monologue. Uh, I wrote a, a little press release type of thing to try to convince um, Lee, my editor, to read it. And it, so this is, this is my official blurb for Battle of the Linguist Mages, which is, in modern day Los Angeles, a shadowy cabal led by the governor of California develops the arcane art of combat linguistics, using it to subvert society and plant the seeds of a future totalitarian empire. The young gamer Isabel Bailey, queen of the medieval rave-themed VR game Sparkle Dungeon, mm -hmm. may be the key to the Cabal's future success. Her prowess in the game makes her an ideal candidate to learn the secrets of power morphemes, unnaturally dense units of meaning that warp perception when skillfully pronounced. But Isabel's reputation also makes her the target of a resistance movement led by spellcasting anarchists who have surreal and impressive magic of their own to teach her and who may be the only thing stopping the cabal from unspeakable acts. California's on the brink of a terrible transformation and Isabel finds herself torn between power and idealism with 40 million lives at stake. Time is short for Isabel to level up and choose a side because the cabal has attracted much bigger and weirder enemies than the anarchist resistance, emerging from dark and vicious dimensions of reality and heading straight for planet Earth. Who will survive the battle of the linguist mages? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 the first time I heard, I was sitting in the audience, first time I saw mages, the concept of the power morpheme was absolutely mind blasting to me, and maybe it was my um, uh, my my poor sleep state. Maybe it was the quantity of drinks I had in my body. But we get to the bottom of the second act, and I believe, and and there was a power morphine moment, uh, just a simple phrase that hit me in my heart and made me weepy, and that was the concept of weaponized hope, and that oh, just struck me. And I mulled over that for weeks and weeks and weeks and made the mistake of getting into debates with people about what it meant, because that also meant trying to like describe this very high concept play and things like that to them and it just wasn't working. So I have lived with this idea and revisited, of course, when I reread the play, but I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's such a reflective thing. It's like, Scott, you just, you just hit me with a power morpheme here. <laughs> it's not fiction after all. No. no. <laughs> No, 
that's that's awesome (laughs) great um so uh uh scott you said that you have another book coming out in 2023 for tour can you tell us anything about that i cannot um and the reason is so uh by the like i've I've written two books since Mages, and I've the first one that I wrote I sent to my editor, and then and then and and publishing is excruciatingly slow. Well, this is news to me. So, like, you send it off, and it's just crickets for months. And then out of the blue, oh, I finally read your thing. Ha 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 ha. Do you even get my email? It's <laughs> just picking up where we left off six months ago. <laughs> um, so, but so in the amount of time it took me, so I wrote that book, I submitted it, I, I submitted it on the day the contract specified it had to be done because I had been getting feedback up until the last minute and I shipped it off. And I love this book that I had written. Uh, I love all my children, but then I started, I got a new idea. And so I started, I wrote a whole, I got like 90,000 words into this new book enough to know. I better tell Lee that there's an, another option on the table that this mm-hmm. new thing, you know, you know, it's, it's a balance. It's like, on the one hand, maybe it's just uh, the newest thing is the best thing because it's new and shiny. So let's just skip to the newest thing and we'll maybe we'll loop back around to that older thing. But there's also a sense that um, the two books are very different in tone and style because I'm trying to, I don't like to explicitly repeat myself just a hundred percent or whatever. I'm trying to learn and push myself and whatever. So the second book that I wrote after mages was kind of, um, little darker and grittier and then this then this new book is more of a spiritual successor to mages and so it it might be better to flip the order that they come out if i'm if i'm given a choice um uh so i sent that so you know the upshot is i've now finished like you'll hear about this soon mike because i'll ask you to read it but um uh, (laughs) it's finished i finished it like a week and a half ago and i'm the first i'm waiting for that first uh my close friends critique to come through and i'll take all of the the (laughs) lawnmower over your soul kind of experience (laughs) and i'll clean that up and i'll start hitting people up to to read the second read the draft after that so uh, the upshot is the part of the reason i can't tell you is because there's been no commitment made to publish either of these books like the two book contract doesn't if you read the contract which i've done (laughs) <laughs> uh, they're not obligated to even print a second book. They just bought an option and, you know, whatever. So fortunately I do know he had read half of that book at the time I pinged him and was really digging it. Nice. Good. So the, yeah, it's good. Just keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> this is all new to me. Maybe I shouldn't be disclosing this kind of stuff, but I don't see what the harm is since who knows by the time, you know, these books come out, I was actually kind of, you know, you got, you wanted to set this podcast up like a literal year before the book comes out. And this is inside baseball territory. This is where like the hardcore people are going to be the people who even care yet. Cause there's no marketing. You can't pre-order it. You can't do anything. <laughs> the new book yet. It's not, it doesn't exist in the world yet. I've mm-hmm. seen the cover, but I can't show you. Mm-hmm. Do you get any input on the cover design? I don't. Oh, yeah. I guess. I guess if, if if you reach a certain level of prominence, you can start to claw your way into that process. Um, some advice that I read along the way that I took to heart was these: the publishers like have teams of very smart people who understand what it takes to make a book pop out on a bookshelf against every other book in the universe, and if if you really think you know more than they do, then, you know, <laughs> great. But 99% of writers are not marketers. They're they're and they shouldn't be. Um, so the flip side is that, you know, the, the, the copy that shows up in various places describing the books often originates with the artist, with the writer, and then gets wordsmithed it'll get tightened and compressed and you know like what i just read you 
that can live on my website. They want a much shorter version and they sure. don't ask me to do the edits. They just trim it and rewrite it and boom. And I don't care. It's all whatever they think is best. Like they, I'm really happy with how things turn out with the, with your favorite band. And I just feel like I'm going to let the experts run the show, but they did show me the cover for battling of some ages. And I just kind of went, wow, <laughs> <laughs> this, I never would have guessed. This is partially, partially this hilarious. This comes from like, do you guys use um, overdrive to get books out of the public library to like uh, only or ebooks or whatever? once or twice? Yeah. Not, so I've not done often. this, I've done this exercise. I've been bored enough looking for science fiction or fantasy to read that I'll go to overdrive and I'll just browse like and I'll, you'll get like page after page of grids of covers. And wow. I can't tell you how many, stereotypical like there's just a cliche mm. of like the the uh, you know the badass hero or of the of the piece you know she's like got her back to the camera kind of looking over her shoulder like yeah. this with a rifle in one hand and a machete in the other and you mm. know i know and, the pose you're talking about and yep. there's like a, hundreds of these books that use that template so that's what i was expecting i was like we're gonna see isabel She's going to, you know, be in her glitter steel jumpsuit and she's going to have her artifact level blades per minute weapon that she's got sitting over, you know, and they didn't do anything like that at all. And so that, again, mm. like if you relied on me, I would do the tropey thing in that case. <laughs> they apparently had better ideas. So. <laughs> cool. Cool. All right. Um, sounds like we're coming near the end. Scotto, if people want to read more of your stuff or check you out, where should they go online? Scotto.org has a really detailed kind of uh, history and it's a big archive of material. So there's lots of fun stuff there and it's not all long form. You see tons of short hits, you know, so. Something that I encourage those not familiar with Scotto's work to spend time with is his web series, The Coffee Table, um, which is this beautiful, beautiful uh, pastiche of different things that we love about science fiction and fantasy storytelling, and um, all lovingly rendered and in a beautiful, beautiful way done by, all created by local artists, actors, designers, and shot in his own home. <laughs> that's not disruptive <laughs> um, and it's uh it's it's really it's really fun and it's it's one of those law it's one of those hidden gems of the internet that i want to encourage people to come back and rediscover or discover for the first time so the coffee table thank Please you check that out. Yeah. yeah thank you yeah i was just curating I, I was looking at the youtube dashboard for comments just i i forget what led me there um and somebody had left a comment on the final episode of the coffee table which not very many people get to right right yeah and they were like <laughs> this person goes well i don't know what to say here i when season two landed out of the blue i couldn't believe it and then then a year later they they delivered an ending and it's really <laughs> weird and good how, <laughs> how did this happen <laughs> I'm like, you are asking a good question. <laughs> I think I can tell you. <laughs> it, was just a, it was a very sweet thing because so few people, you know, are, are getting that far. But, you know, it's like, and then somebody else chimed in like, yeah, what, what they said. Like, it's got a little bit of, it's it's got a little bit of heart to it that just kind of, you know, shimmers along. It, the, the charisma of it is the kind of, it reminds me of kind of balconies in this one way this this that sense of we shouldn't be getting away with this in any way <laughs> and, but we're kind of just bubbling along kind of percolating until the story's done so there's definitely a coffee table um in, inspirations in some of the new stuff that i'm working on Great. for sure yeah i look forward to reading it um your favorite band is it your favorite sorry scott is it your favorite band can't save you or cannot save you your cannot favorite band you. cannot save you available at tour.com look for battle of the linguist mages at tour.com sometime early 2022 check out scotto.org for everything scotto scotto and gilson thank you so much for joining us today yeah thank you for having a pleasure yeah 
Um, we're probably one of the first uh, publicity stops on the uh, Battle of the Lingus Majors <laughs> tour. So thanks for that. Literally the first one and probably this will be the most fun. So <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, this, uh, is a prologue. <laughs> this is just a prologue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Perfect Bound podcast is brought to you by the Panel Jumpers, the Everything Cole Hornaday and I do at thepaneljumper.com. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or however you get you your podcast at perfectmountpodcast.com. Send us an email, perfectmountpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining us, and we will see you next time. <laughs>